Thanks for listening to the River and Way podcast. A quick note on this sermon. Uh, this past Sunday, we had a technical glitch, and we weren't able to record the last five minutes of the sermon. So you'll notice an abrupt end. Don't worry. That's supposed to be there. We want you to have it anyway. Enjoy. chapter 3, the Gospel of Mark, verses 31 through 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You may be seated. It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, It's good, as Liz mentioned, that the weather is turning. Um, The fair is soon. And like how weather in Bakersfield works is like after the fair, it starts to really cool down. It's always still a little warm during the fair. I think we should move the fair up because then the weather would turn sooner. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. But um, yeah, we're excited just as seasons transition, as, as river and way transitions, just so many beautiful things in this season. But we've been, we started last week a series in community, and we're going to be in this series, the practice of community, um, through the rest of the fall. And so we just want to um, invite you into this learning process with us as we catch Jesus' vision for community and for church, um, and as we like bring ourselves under the authority of Jesus' vision in that way. If you would, I would love um, to pray. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we just come to you. And we ask that you would move in our hearts today. God, I just even confess, like, there will be words that I say that come out of my mouth, but God, would you speak to our hearts? We come, like everyone in this room comes, to encounter you, to celebrate you, to glorify you. Our desire is to meet with you. And so even as we dive into this topic and this conversation, would we encounter the goodness of God? This morning, would we encounter your presence? As we encounter your word, may we even just like um, encounter like who you are again. And as we sit next to the people around us, may we like may we experience and encounter you, God, through the people around us, through the body of Christ. And so, Jesus, we just give you this time and ask that you would speak, ask that you would teach us, that you would reshape our imaginations of what community means to you, God. We give you this time. Um, We love you. We worship you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In January 2018, the United Kingdom... Instead, instituted a new ministerial office in the UK. On the backside of the creation of Twitter and the implementation of Instagram, 
the world of Facebook and messaging and WhatsApp, TikTok, all the like different apps that exist to connect you to people, the UK realized something was amiss. There was an issue. And so they instituted this new office. And this person is called the Minister of Loneliness. The Minister of Loneliness. Many journalists, cultural anthropologists, authors, researchers have argued over the last decade that there has been a growing epidemic of loneliness across the developed West. Susan Metz, who is an author and thinker, partnered with Barna, who does some of the like best survey research in the world, exploring culture and faith and how those things intersect. And she wrote a book based on this research. Her book is titled The Loneliness Epidemic. And she says this, the fact of the matter is, among U.S. adults, the younger you are, the more likely you are to experience loneliness. This isn't true in every country, but in America, before the pandemic struck, only one in three boomers, only one in three boomers had felt lonely at least once in the previous week, while well over half of Gen X felt lonely once in the previous week, and 68% of millennials felt lonely once over the previous week. Or another statistic from that book, one in five millennials, which is my age group, it's like is it like 3940-ish currently, is that right? Brandon would know. It's a Brandon thing. Like 40 to like 27, somewhere in there, that 13 age or that 13 year age group, 26 to 41 year olds, right in there. One in five of them said they were lonely all the time in the previous week. One in five said they were lonely all the time. There's a yellow bar over on the right, there's like a white bar in the middle, a dark gray bar, and a like light gray bar over on the left. But, but I want you, you can't see it, so I'm just going to explain it to you. Um, this is gauging loneliness between churched adults and unchurched adults. And the numbers are almost exactly the same. So we're in a loneliness epidemic as a culture, and the church appears to not be the solution to that loneliness problem, which if you catch anything from Jesus's vision for church or community, this is not a good picture that we are on the right track. Like we are missing the track if if you participating in church life yields you the same amount of loneliness as does people who do not participate in church life. Like we have built the wrong sort of thing if this is our reality. And it's not that participating in church or being in community like automatically makes that go away in the same sort of sense that like if you're married, you know like being married doesn't make loneliness go away. Like that's still real and present. But the reality is that, that if we're functioning in Jesus's vision for the body of Christ, for the family of God, then like there should be a stark contrast between churched people and unchurched people. People who are participating in the vision of Jesus' life of community should have a far lower yield of loneliness because we're connected in deep and meaningful ways to people around us. And I think that's what this 
survey from 2020 reveals a bit is that like while we might have superficial connection on Sunday mornings, we don't have deep, meaningful connection in our lives with people who we like quote unquote follow Jesus with. And that's a really, really big problem. That's a really, really big problem. The practice of community should, should yield, should yield a like different sort of being known than any other type of community does. The practice of Jesus's way of community should yield being known intimately and thoroughly and like mask off sort of way that no other community like lives into or embodies in that sort of sense. Because we're all a part of a, like a mix of communities. We're all a part of a number of like, whether it's like kids soccer teams or PTA or like my, like grab a beer with buddies on Friday after, like whatever community you're a part of, we're all a part of those things, but those things don't exist with intentional purpose from Jesus as a kingdom community. And so if we're talking about like a church, the family of God, Jesus's mechanism to usher in the kingdom of God in the world, you would think that like relationships would look significantly different in that place than they do anywhere else in the world. And so it's important that as we dive into this, this teaching, this scripture, and this series, that we understand that like Jesus' vision for community is very different than how most of us passively live into the communities in which we exist, including our Sunday morning church community. We think that Jesus' vision for community is so much more robust than what we do here on Sunday morning. This is a part of it, sure, but this is not the like... You, th- this is not the place of depth or the place of maturity or the place where we can embody the like one another's that live in the New Testament fully. But let's jump into this text just a bit from uh, Mark chapter 3. I want to read it again. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. So Jesus is teaching inside or like he's been teaching all day. He's been healing on the Sabbath. There's been lots of controversy. He makes his way inside. They're trying to eat him and the disciples, but Crowds keep gathering around. So Jesus' mother and brothers show up on the scene and they can't get their way in. They're standing outside. And they sent someone to call to him and a crowd was sitting around Jesus and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus's response here is a bit astonishing. Who are my mother and my brothers? And then he makes a proclamation that like whoever does God's will, those people, that is my family. That is my mother and my brother and my sister. And there's a couple of things that we want to hit what's happening here culturally before we get into like how this specifically applies for the River and Way community. We have to like first touch a few important pieces of the puzzle if we're really going to understand what's happening in this ancient Jewish setting. And the first thing we need to know is about ancient Jewish cultures that there is what cultural anthropologists would call like strong culture. So in the ancient Near East, the time of Jesus, they are living and embodied, their society is, is a strong culture. 
where we, you and I, are a part of what cultural anthropologists would call a weak culture. Strong culture means that the societal norm is that an individual that is part of a group should consider the group's flourishing more than their own. That the individual who is a part of a group should consider the group's well-being more than their own well-being. And the inverse is true of weak culture. The individual is the primary concern, which of course makes the group weak. It's the reason it has the name that it does. And this naturally should make you think of the movie Titanic. So, it just happened to be on the other day when my wife and I were flipping through the channels. Not that we have a remote control. We don't flip through channels. We like scroll on our, yeah, whatever. So, uh, if you remember the movie Titanic, Rose is on the ship and she is a part of this elite class of passengers on the Titanic. Her and her mom are fully aware of this reality that no one else really knows about. That after Rose's dad's death, they have no money. They have no assets. They, like, they have no chance of remaining in the elite class in which they currently are. That is unless Rose marries well, unless she marries someone in the elite class, which is why she is engaged to this really wealthy man who happens to also be a jerk. And this is not for her own individual choice, but it, because it is the best decision for her family. This is a, like a picture of strong culture. This is the regular sort of thinking in a strong group. And then Jack rescues her, if you remember. She's about to jump off the ship, and Jack rescues her. And she falls in love with Jack, and she disappoints her mom by abandoning the cares of her family. And they all live happily ever after for like two more hours until the whole Titanic story unfolds. You all know how the story ends, I suppose. But we must realize, like, Jesus is born into a strong culture where the expectation is that you consider the strength of the group more than your own personal preferences. And here is the like, really quickly, I'm going to try to like download this nugget really quickly. In ancient Jewish culture, how things worked, it's called patrilineal. Like everything flows through the patriarchy line of the family which means that the most important relationships within a family context are not actually husband and wife relationships, but would more so be like sibling relationships because everybody understands that once dad passes on, the oldest brother gets all of the inheritance, including the responsibility to now care for the family. So siblings from a very young age would be built, Malcolm's really excited, he's the oldest son, but um, th there is, families would be built, siblings would know from the very beginning, like this, this relationship, you being in good standing with your siblings is really, really, really important to the success and well-being of the family. And the interesting reality is like ultimately oldest son when dad passes takes the role of dad and that's not just for the nuclear family but the extended family. And so we, we want to see here that Jesus is, he's introducing a new idea of community. And what's interesting is he is even going against the like the, his vision for this new community, the community of God, the community of the Spirit. And when he does this, he, like, he is not subverting strong culture type thinking. If anything, he's introducing a new sort of strong culture. 
that is a part of his way of life that supersedes all cultural expectations of this time. And this is not just like a one-time thing that Jesus does. Jesus goes on to primarily define the people that follow him as the Greek word adelphoi. Everyone say adelphoi. And what this term means is brothers and sisters. This is family language, and it's the normative language of the scriptures. Every New Testament writer who writes about the family of God or writes about Christians or followers of Jesus, they use this, this term. They use the term Adelphoi. It's Paul's primary language for the church. And as far as we can tell, it's how people of the early church just referred to one another. We say that like a person is a Christian, they would have said that person is a brother or a sister. Christian is what other people may have called the early church, but they always considered themselves fundamentally from this teaching of Jesus, they considered themselves family. Jesus here in this text is redefining what it means to be family. And those two realities, strong culture and Jesus' view of this new way to be family, like those things as we explore them should like rub us, like we should catch friction with them a bit. If I'm just, like it, it rubs me the wrong way a bit. For a strong culture just feels like so otherworldly in so many ways because it is so far outside our normal waters. Our normal, Western-developed, hyper-individualistic life is about me and my pursuit of happiness. It rubs against what we've inherited as like the expectation or the fulfillment of our life. Where our individual rights and our individual freedoms have, have reigned as the primary lens for how we live, how we make decisions for our entire lives. And sometimes, even in this hyper-individualistic lane, like as we bring others into the conversation, it's usually from a, a perspective of consultation, like tell me what you think, give me your perspective so I can still make the best decision for me. And that's different than what Jesus is introducing us to. That's different than this idea of strong culture. We ask the sort of question, should I buy a new house, without considering the years of relationship we have built with our neighbors? Should I change jobs without weighing the reality that you as a follower of Jesus have gained significant amount of influence in your workplace with certain people? Or when we decide who we marry, our deepest question is, do I really love this person and want to spend the rest of my life with them? Where a strong culture would ask, is the person, this person not just going to like make me happy, but are they going to help my family and my community flourish? That's what in community with. You see, Jesus' new idea of family, and just to be clear, he's not leaving mom and brothers out through the context of the story. We see that Jesus invites them in to family. Like, they're, they're a part, mother and brothers in this text are a part of the new family as well. But it does, like, this concept, like, rubs us wrong a little bit. Over 30 years ago, Howard Snyder who's like a, a, like a societal thinker, would be the best way to put it, was asked the question, how would you go about destroying community? 
How would you go about isolating people from one another, from a shared life with others? And he offered the following strategies. This is what he said about destroying community life. I would fragment family life. I would move people away from the neighborhoods where they grew up, set people farther apart by giving them bigger houses and yards, and separate the places people work from where they live. In other words, I would partition off people's lives and feel disconnected culture where self is king, relationships are thin, and individuals fend for themselves. This is all like pre-iPhone, right? Like this is pre-technology, what we would call technology. And to dig the hole even a little bit deeper, author David Brooks wrote a controversial piece for The Atlantic back in March 2020, right? Um, as the COVID pandemic hit. And I think if anything, as the pandemic hit, it revealed that his thesis for so many was like actually accurate. The title of his work is called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake, which I think is a worthwhile read if you have 30 minutes this week. And before you like shut me off or shut him off, just hear what he has to say. People who grow up in a nuclear family tend to have a more individualistic mindset than people who grew up in a multi-generational extended clan. People with an individualistic mindset tend to be less willing to sacrifice self for the sake of family, and the result is only more family disruption. And I think what David Brooks is getting after is that there's only like, That there's not only like a a beauty to a picture of like a big extended family that lives life and like flourishes, find flourishing together. But there's also like economic, cultural and institutional effect when that does not exist. Or think of the phrase that used to be normal in culture that it takes a village to raise a child. And now instead of creating a village of familial-like relationships, we outsource our village to hired help school systems and a very small group of people. And I would say some of that it takes a village mindset still exists in the community of Bakersfield, but it is dwindling here and it is gone in every major urban center across the country. But Jesus' idea, when he stokes this fire, the thing he always makes me think of is immigrant families. Where over a couple generations, they are sorting through the reality of, of being what was a part of a strong culture. And then two generations later, their family is transforming to become a weak culture. Where like grandma and grandpa are holding on to this cultural expectation that the big extended family is necessary for life and flourishing. And all my grandkids want to do is like be on their cell phones by themselves in their room. Does that picture make a little sense? And I actually love, like one of the things I love about the diversity of Bakersfield is I have many friends whose families come from Latinx cultures. And the idea of like familia comes to mind when I read this text. Because what I love about Latinx cultures is like when they come together, like everyone comes together. 
It's not like me and my nuclear family. It's not me and my children. It's everyone. It's abuelo and abuela and cousins and tios and tias and tios and tias that aren't really tios and tias, but they've always been there and they've always been around. And there's the neighbors and like everyone is invited to this familial type feast, this familial type experience. And that's beautiful and lovely and chaotic and forming all at the same time. But the reality is we, like, we have to learn to sit around the table with our grandparents and great-grandparents to hear their stories that we might like, catch some wisdom through their stories. We, like, we as a culture, as a people, we need that again. But what Jesus gives us is not just a picture to have like bigger nuclear families. Jesus gives us a picture of having a new family that is born of the Spirit, a community of the Spirit. So of course, when you gather, you should invite mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, but you should also invite spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers and spiritual grandparents and spiritual aunts and spiritual uncles. And what that means for many of us in the room is we must take up the call to become those things. We must take up the call to see the church again as a family. Because the reality is that when you say yes to following the way of Jesus, it is like it's an individual decision, an individual response to the drawing of God, that God is drawing you to himself. But when you are baptized, you are not baptized into like an individual faith. You are baptized into a community. You are baptized into a family. One of Paul's favorite metaphors for life in Christ is the term adoption. And while all metaphors break down at some point, the use of his metaphor is important for the way we try to understand what God is revealing to us through the metaphor. And I think most simply for today at least, when Paul describes us in Galatians 4 as those who might receive adoption from the Father, and then he declares those people sons, it's important that we see that God has given us the spirit of sonship, like think heir, think inheritance, those sort of things, the spirit of sonship. But with that reality of being in, like this, inheriting the spirit of sonship, we also inherit like the spirit of brotherhood and sisterhood. When my wife and I, when Jackie and I had our second, third, and fourth sons, They came into our home as a son in our family. I was their dad and Jackie was their mom and they each individually were my son. But they weren't only that. They came into our home and immediately they became brothers, not by their own choice. And some days they may like the idea of being alone if that were an option for them. But in our family, that is not a choice they get to make. When you become a part of our family, you are a child of Nick and Jackie, but you have brothers and sisters. These two realities go together and they cannot be pulled apart. And in the same sort of way, when you become a part of God's family, you gain a heavenly father and you gain brothers and sisters. To be a child of the father is to be a brother or sister in the family In Joseph Hellerman's book, When the Church Was a Family, he says this about Paul's writings in Galatians. Paul's point is not not simply that God is now my father and I am now his son. 
God in Jesus' great work of redemption was not establishing a series of isolated personal relationships with his individual followers. He was creating a family of sons and daughters, of siblings who are now all one in Christ Jesus. The saving work of Christ, therefore, has a corporate as well as an individual dimension. For Paul, the church is a family. The idea of Jesus forming a new family is fundamental to the good news of Jesus. The idea of Jesus forming a new family is fundamental to the good news of Jesus. This idea from Jesus is bound deeply together with the good news with the gospel. There are a lot of reasons for this good news. There's a lot of reasons that like being a part of a family, being a part of a community is good news. And I don't have the text in front of me. I believe it's Mark 11 when Jesus turns over the tables and he's talking about how the house of God is like a house of prayer. And he, and he says every nation um, it's like every nation is a part of the family or something like that. And that word nation is the word ethnos in the Greek, where we get the word ethnic or ethnicities from. There's a beauty to like God's invitation to family that includes like every nation, tongue and tribe, every culture, every ethnicity, that like we actually are incomplete when we don't have each other. There's a beautiful diversity to God's family that like we become God's family together as we journey together in the direction of Jesus. Jesus' vision for church is that not of like a Sunday gathering or a Christmas and Easter thing or even like a building. Jesus' vision for church is a family. And most healthy families have some sort of this mix in common. They eat together, do life together. They show love and affection for one another. They hold each other accountable to agreeable expectations. They share resources, share responsibilities, help each other with hard things, make decisions together, help each other become who they are supposed to be, and are faithful to one another. I'm going to read that list again. Just for a second, I want you to put on the lens of like, is this what the church family does? Is this what my relationships as I follow Jesus with others, is this what they look like? They eat together. They do life together. They show love and affection for one another. They hold each other accountable. They share resources, share responsibilities, help each other with hard things, make decisions together. Help each other become who they are supposed to be and are faithful to one another. And while for many of us that hasn't been the like church experience, the family experience that we've had, this is why we're spending so much time looking into the practice of community together. Like this is our deepest desire to become these sorts of people too. That River and Way would be like this sort of place. Because the reality is, like, as we explored a bit last week, Sunday has its limitations, but these, uh, there's a a verse pairing with it. I'll just read through them quickly. Acts 2.42 says, they devoted themselves to breaking bread together. Acts 2.44 and 46 says, all believers were together. They met daily in the temple courts. 1 Peter 5 verse 14 says, greet another with a kiss of love. And I know for us in America, that's like a weird idea. Think European. It's not that abnormal. Take a deep breath. We'll be okay. 
encourage one another and build one another up in 1 Thessalonians 5. No one claimed any possession as their own, but shared everything they had in Acts 4. Served one another with whatever gift you received in 1 Peter 4. If one part suffers, every part suffers in 1 Corinthians 12. It seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit, this idea of unity in Acts 15. Let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, Hebrews 10. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres, 1 Corinthians 13.4. These are just some of the ideas of Jesus and the other New Testament writers' commands, instructions for life to be lived together with one another. That phrase, one another, there's more than a hundred mentions of it in the New Testament. Fifty-nine of them are direct commands for the body of Christ, for the family of God, for the church, for you and for me. And if this picture, this idea makes you a little bit uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable a little bit too. But the reason this makes you and me uncomfortable is because what has become normal for us, the culture that has become normal for us, is not this like life on life following Jesus together over a long journey. That is not what we've inherited as normal. What has become normal is this surface level participation as long as it meets my needs the best way I see fit. And that, like, that is in, like, an idol that we have to work to break down and destroy. That is not a part of the kingdom family of God. I think that the reason this is, like, rubs us wrong is because we have compromised for too long on Jesus' vision for church as family. And I said this last week, and I will say it again, and probably every week I teach through the Practice of Community series. We at River and Way do not have a silver bullet to fix a problem. We do not have the silver bullet to fix a problem with loneliness or with discipleship or what we've inherited is like community vision for the church. But we we refuse to compromise on clinging tightly to Jesus' vision for the church and community. The vision that Jesus carries for the church being a family. Because there is a reality for the church's family. There's like reality. And then there's the ideal. And we talk about the ideal a lot. We'll spend some time talking about the reality as well. But what's important to understand is that as we talk about the reality of church as family and the ideal of church as family, the goal is that like in between both of those, we actually find the person of Jesus again through one another. Like we're actually formed in discipleship through the reality and the ideal, somewhere in between those two. Somewhere in between those two, but we will not compromise on Jesus's high vision. Because whether we accept this truth or deny it, the reality is that you have been saved into a family. That, like most plainly from the words of Jesus, is true. Or Joseph Hellerman once again from his book, when the church was a family, says the idea of salvation cannot be reduced to a personal relationship with Jesus. God's plan is much more encompassing. God intends for salvation to be a community-creating event. 
So yes, your salvation is individual, but the, the intent behind that is that your salvation becomes a part of a community. And this is like, for, for the first 1,500 years of church history, no one rubbed against this grain. And then a desire, a rightful desire in the Reformation where we began to like really individualize our personal relationship with Jesus, which belongs. It's deeply, deeply, deeply important. Please don't misunderstand me when I say that. I 100% believe you are like, you are saved into the family of God through an individual decision and relationship. But once you are saved, you no longer exist as just an individual. You exist as a part of a family. When you, the first 1,500 years of church history, when you said yes to following the way of Jesus, you did not do that at home by yourself. You did that in community with others. That's always the way the church has been. And in our hyper-individualism, particularly in the West, we have deviated from that reality, I think, a bit too far. And it's time for us to do some hard work to, like, re-correct the pendulum, to get back to living life as a family who follows Jesus together. And our hope for pressing into this reality is that we grow in the way we relate to one another. Yes, like that is 100% true, that we would grow in relationship with one another. But as we grow in relationship with one another, we grow in the way that we the people he created us to be. I say often, like there is no going at it alone in the kingdom of God. That's just not a picture that exists, a normal picture that exists in the scriptures. Last week, I said that community is a mechanism of discipleship. It's an agent that God has given us to change and transform, and that is 100% true. But when it comes to all sorts um, of different ideas or concepts, things we don't really have the time to get into, but I want to I leave you with this idea, this hope, that as we grow in relationship with one another, that we also, like, in a significantly deep and meaningful way, we grow in relationship with God. Like that is the, the hope of, of communal life together. Because we know, like we know, so, like at the very least, like psychology and anthropology and sociology all tell us that like the things that we carry deep down in our hearts can only, like the wounds that we carry deep down in our hearts can only be healed through relationship with one another. That if you suffer from like an attachment disorder from childhood, that the way that heals in adulthood is through loving, committed relationship. That if you've been hurt and wounded by people, the way you get back to trust and healing is not by sitting alone by yourself in a room, but with people. And I think one of the things that we don't catch often enough when we talk about hurt or wound or pain and the necessity for healing is the reality is that, that much of our hurt and pain and wounding